Who's Hacking Who? It's Tuesday, February 19th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter, in for Marco Werman. A new report blames a Chinese army unit for cyber attacks against the U.S. Some say our nation isn't doing enough to defend itself. We are perhaps the most vulnerable nation on the planet when it comes to cybersecurity and networked infrastructures. The Chinese say they're victims of hacking, too. And later, a rabbi in Israel struggles to get ultra-Orthodox Jews to share the burden. What we're trying to do is create a situation where they continue religious observance as they are, but they're serving in the army, serving in national service, going to school, working. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. This is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter filling in for Marco Werman. Groundless Criticism. That's what the Chinese government suggests is in a new report issued today by a U.S. computer security firm. The report by Virginia-based Mandiant Corporation traces a wave of cyber attacks against American targets to one specific neighborhood in Shanghai and to the doorstep of one specific building, a 12-story office tower that's home to Unit 61398 of China's People's Liberation Army. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is following the story from Beijing. And uh, Mary Kay, tell us about Unit 61398. Is that uh, something everyone there knows about? And what have we learned about them? No, I mean, basically, the very fact that the unit has a number is a code. It's a way for the military to cover what the unit is doing. This unit is officially the second bureau of the PLA's, the People's Liberation Army's General Staff Department's third department. What is that about? Well, this is a unit that's tasked with intelligence, with cyber operations, and with cyber intelligence. And what the Mandiant Report uh, has put together in 60 pages with a lot of very specific detail uh, is to build the case that what it has been calling an advanced persistent threat, APT, and they call this particular one APT-1, is in fact this unit of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. And what they have been doing is stealing vast amounts of information from U.S. and other computers, businesses, government departments, and other organizations, both to help Chinese state-owned enterprises and, and the government in their efforts to excel in certain key industries, but also to gain intelligence on what rivals are up to, what the U.S. government is up to, what U.S. journalists are up to. And alarmingly, Mandiant says, they're developing a capability to be able to break into electrical grids and to have some effect on oil and gas supply. And is that the most shocking part of this report? Because certainly we've heard from your own reporting that... uh... China is engaged in espionage? Well, I think what's interesting about this report is that it goes into so much specific detail. It even actually shows a video on their webpage connected to this report that shows 
the actual attack happening. They were able to follow the screen and take a screenshot, but not just a still shot of video that showed the cyber attack. Basically, Mandiant has been following these sorts of activities by what they're calling Advanced Persistent Threat 1, which they think is the People's Liberation Army Unit 61398. They've been following them for seven years. And within this report, there are 3,000 separate pieces of data that point to the high likelihood that this is one and the same. This Advanced Persistent Threat is the PLA's intelligence unit 61398. And why talk about this now. What's happened recently that that caused Mandiant to to bring this out in the open now? Well, what's been happening over the last couple of years is that these kinds of attacks, both in frequency and also in sort of the seriousness of the kind of attack that's being made, have really been ramped up. This is what Mandiant is saying. And to just read to you quickly from their report explaining why they decided to go ahead and expose this, they said that It's time to acknowledge the threat is originating in China, and we wanted to do our part to arm and prepare security professionals to combat that threat effectively. So certainly the point is not to name and shame, but it's to get people in the United States and other English-speaking countries to be on their guard. To recognize the magnitude of the threat, to recognize that it's becoming increasingly aggressive, and then to take steps to try to fend off these kinds of attacks. Now, interestingly, the initial response from the Chinese government was not to say, this is baloney, we're not doing anything of the kind. In the past, the Chinese government has fobbed off accusations and and general uh, reports that haven't gone into anything close to this much detail, saying, you know, you you can't throw groundless criticism like this at us. And by the way, we're also a, a victim. Chinese computers get hacked all the time. And, you know, we all need to work on this together internationally. Today, Foreign Ministry spokesman Hong Lei said something similar, but not exactly the same. He said, and I'm quoting here, hacking attacks are transnational and anonymous Determining their origins is extremely difficult. We don't know how the evidence in this report can be tenable. And then he also said, groundless criticism is irresponsible and unprofessional and will not help solve the problem. Listen closely to that. He didn't say this report contains groundless criticism, which he surely would have if he felt that he could. But he basically is building the case that's very familiar that usually comes from China. You know, how can you pin this on us? You don't have the the evidence. This report was Mandian's best effort to say, yeah, we do. The world's Mary Kay Magstead in Beijing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. You can see the video Mary Kay mentioned of an actual hacker attack as it was tracked by Mandiant. That's at theworld.org. Whether or not Chinese hackers are at work in that office tower in Shanghai, cybersecurity is increasingly a top issue here in the U.S. Today, the White House said it has repeatedly raised concerns about hacking with senior Chinese officials. And last week, President Obama mentioned cybersecurity in his State of the Union speech. Now our enemies are also seeking the ability to sabotage our power grid, our financial institutions, our air traffic control systems. We cannot look back years from now and wonder why we did nothing in the face of real threats to our security and our economy. Cyber threats to our infrastructure are nothing new, according to Rick Forno. He directs the Graduate Cybersecurity Program at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. The fact that our networks and our critical infrastructure systems remain vulnerable 
to external penetration like what we're reading about. That to me is still very disturbing because we've been talking about this exact type of vulnerability for close to 15, 20 years now. Certainly, we must be doing something. If a power control system is deemed a critical resource, why is the computer that controls that public resource able to receive email from the outside world, such as from China, and cause mischief? Those systems that we view as critical should be segregated completely from the public Internet. And yet nothing's being done, is what you're suggesting. Not enough is being done, and not enough to produce meaningful and effective, lasting cybersecurity improvements. A lot of it is window dressing and, you know, good for a soundbite. But when the rubber meets the road, I don't see a lot of the improvements that are needed. Speaking of good for a soundbite, I mean, certainly it's easy to to blow this thing out of proportion and, and to get really, really frightened. Is it a frightening scenario? I mean, how vulnerable are we, do you think? We are perhaps the most vulnerable nation on the planet when it comes to cybersecurity and networked infrastructures. These should give us pause as we look at you know, why we remain vulnerable. Is the U.S. sort of doing its own bit to attack or, or prepare to attack other countries? Is this kind of a tit-for-tat thing? It would not surprise me in the least. I believe what we're seeing both with China and perhaps even the U.S. and other nations is proactive intelligence gathering of other countries' networks to see what's out there and do what intelligence agencies and militaries have done for decades, looking at other countries. Where does this lead? Are there any red lines? International jurisprudence is so complicated, there are so many aspects of it. Uh, Is the fact that a computer run by a Chinese organization that's allegedly part of the Chinese military attacking a U.S.-based computer? Is that an act of war because those bits and bytes crossed U.S. borders? I don't know. Um, there are economic considerations. Where, where do we draw that red line really is something that there is no clear answer or even clear guidance on that yet, to my knowledge. Well, it would seem to me that if something crosses from commercial espionage to harming the publics of one country or another, that's uh, that's a pretty big deal. If the power gets shut off in New York City, you know, that's beyond stealing secrets. I agree. And then you could make the argument that uh, you're looking at a maybe a war or something just short of a war where you do get different interpretations because you have placed public safety uh, at, at jeopardy. And uh, what do we do? How do we respond? We have made overtures to the Chinese government, I guess, complaining about these alleged activities. But um, beyond diplomatic representations, because of the sensitivity of cyber warfare, cyber espionage, I think lawmakers and national leaders are very hesitant to speak too openly and too frankly about this issue between themselves. Rick, you must talk with your students about scenarios like this. What happens if we are attacked? If the lights go out in New York City, can we attack back in some fashion or another? It really depends This is not the same as the Cold War, where if somebody launched a nuclear missile at the United States, you could look and use satellites and say, oh, country X launched from this city and this this launch site. It's a lot different in cyberspace to point attribution at the true perpetrator of a cyber attack or cyber incident. That's a huge problem, especially when you're talking, you know, do we nuke them? Do we want to nuke the wrong person? Rick Forno, director of the Graduate Cybersecurity Program at the University of Maryland. Thank you for your time. 
Thank you. Forget hacking. Our next story is about a much more old-fashioned sort of crime, the kind where thieves make off with $50 million worth of diamonds. They literally took them off the plane they were being loaded into. The daring heist went down at the International Airport in Brussels, Belgium. The world's Jerry Haddon has the details. Belgian officials already have a clear picture of how last night's heist went down. Jan van der Kruse is the Brussels airport spokesman. At 7.47, there has been a breach of the airport perimeter. They cut a big hole in the fence. Two cars have come onto the airport territory, have gone immediately to the location where an aircraft was ready for departure, was preparing for departure. A bunch of heavily armed guys sprang from the vehicles, he says, as a security van was loading the diamonds onto the plane. From there, Brussels prosecutor spokeswoman Anja Binchnent takes up the trail. They did not shoot. Nobody was injured. But the people present, including the people working for the valuables transportation company, the pilot and the co-pilot, were held at gunpoint. The suspects then opened the cargo doors of the plane and stole parcels from it, some 120 parcels, mostly with diamonds in them. At this moment, we do not know the total value of the loot. Whatever their ultimate value, this was clearly one of the biggest diamond heists ever. The nearby city of Antwerp is the heart of Europe's diamond trade. An estimated $200 million worth of the jewels move in and out of the city every day. Clearly, the Brussels burglars knew what they were after. Their entire operation, from breaching the security fence to screeching away in getaway cars, took exactly 11 minutes. John van der Kruse from the airport says he's at a loss to explain how quickly and smoothly it all went down. Airport security is organized uh, internationally. Uh, there are very strict rules and regulations, and we comply to all of those. Uh, what has happened has happened, and now there's an inquiry to see how this could have happened and what could be done to avoid it in the future. That's the airport's job. Belgian police still have to find the thieves. One factor in their favor, some of the jewels may have already been polished, making it easier to track them down. For The World, I'm Cherry Haddon. When is a princess not a princess? When she's a shop window mannequin. That story's next on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Britain's Duchess of Cambridge is still known to many as Kate Middleton, her name before marrying Prince William. But earlier this month, Kate was referred to as something else, a shop window mannequin and a jointed doll on which certain rags are hung. It's created a very British brouhaha, as the world's Alex Galifant reports. The author Hilary Mantel won enormous acclaim for her novels of 16th century British royal intrigue. Wolf Hall and its sequel, Bring Up the Bodies. Not long ago, she delivered an hour-long lecture in London called Royal Bodies. Much of it centred on the wives of Henry VIII. But near the start, she talked about Kate Middleton, who's currently pregnant, arguing that the shifts in her public image hew to age-old patterns. Once she gets over being sick, the press will decide she's radiant. And they will find that this young woman's life, till now, was nothing. Her only point and purpose being to give birth. 
Hilary Mantel's take on Kate was received by the British commentariat with careful attention and measured argument. Nah, just kidding. Mantel's been accused of a venomous attack and a bizarre rant. Even British Prime Minister David Cameron jumped in to defend the good princess against the evil novelist. I think she writes great books, but I think what she said about Kate Middleton is completely misguided, completely wrong. A tirade, a rant, an attack. This Mantell woman must be some kind of B-word, am I right? Mantell's piece is not an attack. The word attack, it's sexist. Next, we're going to be hearing about a cat fight. If Martin Amos had said as much about Prince William, we would be calling it condemnation or denunciation. This is Kate Bolick. She's a contributing editor to The Atlantic magazine. And her analysis is part of a broader idea that women in the public eye continue to be reduced to stock roles, be it the angry shrew picking a cat fight or the pure virgin preparing to marry and so on. That's one of the main points of Mantel's piece is that that's who Kate is to us, is a wife and now a mother-to-be and, and nothing more, and that's so reductive. Kate seems to have been selected for her role of princess because she was irreproachable, without quirks, without oddities, without the risk of the emergence of character. And Bolick observes that Kate's public profile makes her, for many in the UK and beyond, kind of the culmination of aspirational womanhood right now. You know, so here she is in the public eye all the time being as flat as a pancake or, you know, as complicated as a paper doll. And that reduces women's ability to imagine more complicated lives for themselves. Now, the Duchess of Cambridge is most likely a fun and funny person in private, or if you get to chat with her one-on-one. Here's a charity worker coming to her defence. I have to say, I've had the privilege of meeting her twice, and that is so not the person I met at all. But Kate's role isn't to talk with everyone like that. It's to be the nation's princess, to bear the nation's child, to be in the same moment magically glamorous and charmingly down-to-earth. The question is... Is that the fantasy of royalty we really want? Again, the commoner, Kate Bolick. If they wanted, they could be creating a new kind of narrative or a new kind of fantasy. And Kate Middleton, highly educated in a time when women don't live with the restrictions they once did, she's well-placed to transform the fantasy, to be the princess you really can believe in. She could reconcile those aspirations, if she had them, with the role that the royal family requires, if she had the imagination and wherewithal to do that. Maybe she will, maybe she won't. I guess we'll all be watching. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. Another ancient institution under pressure features in our GeoQuiz today. The institution is the Catholic Church, and the setting for our next story is the Asian country we want you to name. It's a nation of islands, more than 7,000 of them, and it's 80% Catholic. You know what? Don't bother reaching for the atlas. The answer is the Philippines. The Catholic Church wields a lot of influence there, or used to, as Jason Struther reports from Manila. Ladies and gentlemen, walk this Carlos Celdran leads a group past the walls of a Spanish fortress in one of Manila's oldest districts. The 40-year-old performance artist is also a social activist, and that often puts him at odds with the Catholic Church here. In 2010, one of Celdran's demonstrations got him into serious trouble. 
He took inspiration from a classic 19th century Filipino novel. The antagonist is a man named Father Damaso. And that bad priest used his powers of the church in order to abuse the people around him and get what he wanted. So I wrote down the word Damaso on a placard. I entered the Manila Cathedral and I presented that one name in front of all the bishops of the Philippines. And Seldran shouted that the church should stop meddling in government affairs. That stunt got him arrested. Last month, he was convicted of offending religious feelings and now faces up to a year in prison. Seldron says he wanted to draw attention to reproductive health legislation, the RH bill, which the Catholic Church had tried to block for well over a decade. But this past December, lawmakers finally approved it, and Seldron couldn't be happier. The RH bill now has become RH law. That was my objective when I entered the cathedral. Objective accomplished. Worth every moment, jail time or not. Around 80% of all Filipinos are Catholic, and the church has been the nation's spiritual center since colonial times. But some observers say its moral and political influence is not what it used to be, and the passage of the reproductive health legislation is proof of that. Maria Lourdes Rubalita lectures in politics and religion at the University of the Philippines in Quezon City. The Catholic Church holds many schools in the entire country. That's where they infuse their ideas, but we can say that the schools are not anymore the sole venue or platform for information and ideas. You get it from television, you get it from the networking, and you have a lot of Western or non-Filipino ideas coming into the country. Ideas like subsidized contraception and also divorce, which is still banned under Filipino law. Red Tani, who heads the secular activist group Filipino Freethinkers, says the stage is set for breaking that remaining taboo. He says politicians who are sponsoring bills to legalize divorce can appeal to the public on economic terms. I think it will be a lot easier than the RH battle. Because in terms of divorce, you really don't have to put a budget on it. It's going to be purely a human rights issue, an issue of personal choice. Even staunch church supporters like Anthony Perez, founder of the group Filipinos for Life, admit that many Catholics are pulling away from the church, and other religious groups are drawing them in. The church is in the crossroads today, absolutely. The parish priests are losing their members to the charismatic groups. The, the influence of the priests are waning. The church has to recognize the, the change of paradigm. Perez says last week's resignation of Pope Benedict might help turn things around. He hopes the next pope will re-energize the church and bring Filipino parishioners back not only to the pews, but also to their traditional Catholic values. For The World, I'm Jason Struther, Manila. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up on The World, the Pistorius murder case reverberates in the Paralympic community. Some hope his accomplishments will still have meaning. I think a lot of people around the world had to look at that and go, wow, there's a, a person with a physical disability that's using prosthetics that is running on, on par with able-bodied athletes. And that was, that was what was huge. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, in for Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The athlete Oscar Pistorius doesn't dispute he shot and killed his girlfriend, the model Riva Steenkamp, but he says he thought she was an intruder in his bathroom. Prosecutors aren't accepting that explanation, though. In a Pretoria courtroom today, they accused Pistorius of premeditated murder. If convicted, the Olympic and Paralympic track star could be sentenced to life in jail. The world's Anders Kelto is in Cape Town. And Anders, uh, it was an emotional day today. Riva Steenkamp's funeral was held today. The court case was today. How are things being reported there in uh, South Africa? Well, the media, and particularly social media, has really spiraled out of control. I've seen the phrase Oscar Pistorius trial by Twitter bouncing around a lot, and that really is is the case. There's so much speculation happening about what actually happened, stories about love triangles and a bloody cricket bat, that it's hard for the public to distinguish facts from speculation or from pure fabrication. And a lot of people are concerned that because of this, he's not really going to get a fair trial. As for uh, what happened in court today, both defense and prosecution agrees that Mr. Pistorius did it. What is the prosecution saying? Well, the prosecution is saying that this is a case of premeditated murder, that he knew that his girlfriend was inside the bathroom, that she was locked inside this bathroom, and that he shot her with the intention of hitting her and killing her, and that it was a premeditated murder. But Pistorius, for the first time, actually came out and gave his version of the events through an affidavit that was read by his lawyer. And his version of the story is basically that he awoke in the night Uh, to close the sliding door, which was open. He heard someone in the bathroom, and then he fired four shots through the bathroom door, thinking that it was an intruder in the house. Um, He claims he then went back to bed to tell Steenkamp, his girlfriend, what had happened, only to find that she wasn't there. And only then did it dawn on him that it could be her in the bathroom. So he claims he then walked to the balcony, called for help, and then eventually broke down the bathroom door and carried his girlfriend down the stairs, uh, but she died in his arms before help could arrive. It isn't uncommon that, that someone in South Africa would have a gun by the side of the bed or, or that there would be an intruder, is it? It's not that uncommon for people to own guns here, although the restrictions are more severe than the United States, for example. Um, but Pistorius was known to sleep with a 9 millimeter under his bed. In fact, he made that statement in court today. It's also emerged in the course of this trial that he isn't exactly the the kind of person that a lot of people assume, that he's dealt with anger issues and is a little bit of a wild man. And so there is sort of this reflective quality taking place on the part of South Africans, you know, of people realizing, hey, maybe this guy isn't exactly who we all assumed that he was. And from what I understand, he's actually set up a media team in addition to a legal team um, as this court case progresses. What more can you tell us about that? He has. He's hired a guy named Stuart Higgins, who is a former journalist and now works in PR in London. And in fact, he was Oscar Pistorius's PR officer during the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympics. So they have a history of working together. And Higgins said he felt obligated to work with him. You know, he didn't want to turn his back on him at this in, in this time of need. 
So he's been working with him to sort of launch a, a positive PR campaign on Pistorius's behalf. Uh, they've relaunched Oscar Pistorius's website, and it shows positive messages of support that he's received, especially from other disabled people and disabled athletes. Um, but at the same time, Higgins says that they're under strict orders from the court not to try and fight this case in the media or to try and influence media coverage in any way. And Higgins has said that they believe that this case will be proven in court and not in the media. The world's Anders Kelto in Cape Town, South Africa. Thank you for the update. Thanks, Aaron. We have a lot more on issues related to gun violence around the world, including our story on the history of guns in South Africa. That's all at theworld.org. As we heard from Anders, the Pistorius case is reverberating within the Paralympic community. Trooper Johnson was a member of the U.S. National Wheelchair Basketball Team for 15 years. He's competed in four Paralympic Games. Trooper Johnson, what was your reaction when you heard the news about Oscar Pistorius? Oh, I think we were all shocked. I think it was something that was just uh, an incredibly horrible event that happened. He was a Paralympic athlete that was brought into uh, the limelight for something that was this terrible. Uh, we were all just shocked. And how important is or was, I guess, uh, Oscar Pistorius as a role model for disabled athletes? And, and you personally, was he a hero to you? Well, I think what was kind of strange is Oscar Pistorius and his journey into the Olympic Games was something that was incredible because the exposure that he got in that race in the Olympics, it opened the doors to the Paralympic Games to an audience that would have never even been exposed to the Paralympics at all. I mean, all these people that were watching the Olympic Games and watched that, you know, the effort that he made in that race and his journey to get there would have never even known about the Paralympics for the most part. I mean, unless unless that race happened. And the exposure that he got because it happened during the Olympic Games really brought the attention back onto the Paralympic athletes and the Paralympic movement. Yeah, this was the most watched Paralympic Games ever, wasn't it? It was the most watched Paralympic Games. And I, th- and I believe a lot of it had to do with the fact that Oscar raced in the Olympic Games leading up to that. Drupal, do you think his accomplishments will be forever overshadowed by uh, what's happened in the last few days? The reality is that we want to look at this as two separate things. We want the Paralympics to be known for the spectacular events that their athletes are accomplishing on the grandest scale in the world. That's what we want the Paralympics to be known for. This incident is, it's an individual that should not be related back to the Paralympics at all. And I think that the fact that the two are related right now, that's one thing that we really want to make clear, that this was not a Paralympic athlete in competition that did anything. This was an individual that's outside of the scope of the Paralympic Games and the Paralympic movement. Is there another athlete up and coming or or currently part of the Paralympic movement that could reach the status of Oscar Pistorius? I think that timing was everything on this. And the fact that he had such a battle, a legal battle, to be eligible for the Olympic Games. And when you really look at the Paralympics, the Paralympic movement and the athletes that are competing in the Paralympics, they're spectacular athletes. But I think what made this extremely important and so extraordinary was the fact that you had a Paralympic athlete that competed in the Olympic Games on the Olympic level and did very well. And that's what really brought the attention back to the Paralympics, and that's what brought what made it such a huge event. You know, I think we all kind of forget that he lost in the Paralympics. He he got beaten. So it wasn't necessarily his events in the Paralympics that are such a spectacular activity. It was the fact that he was able to compete on the Olympic level against able-bodied athletes. And that I think there's another thing that really just kind of got overshadowed is when you watched him run during the Olympic Games, it was actually spectacular. I mean— 
the old days when you had people on prosthetics running, they were, you know, they were laboring down the track. And it really looked like you could obviously see that these guys were on prosthetic legs. When Oscar ran, Oscar ran like an able-bodied athlete running. I mean, his form, his gait, his stride was just spectacular. And so I think a lot of people around the world had to look at that and go, wow, there's a, a person with a physical disability that's using prosthetics that is running on, on par with able-bodied athletes. That was what was huge. So it wasn't just Oscar's role as the Paralympic athlete, but it was actually the exposure that he got during the Olympics that was so important. And right now, I'm not sure if there's another Paralympic athlete that's going to get that same kind of exposure. I mean, as we look to Rio, as we look to Sochi, I don't think anybody's going to make that crossover for the, you know, in any generation that we're going to see. What do you think his legacy ultimately will be? The accomplishments on the field at the Olympics or what's happening now? What we want to hope for is that his accomplishments that he made for the Paralympic movement and for Paralympic athletes or athletes with disabilities in general don't get overshadowed. The reality is when you looked at at Oscar's performance uh, in London and when he returned back, you know, after the games were over, the Paralympic sport clubs or all those organizations that had uh, relationships with the International Paralympic Federation, all of a sudden you know, they got more attention. There were more kids. There were more people coming out because all of a sudden they saw somebody competing and they saw somebody that had a disability that was succeeding in, in athletics and they were, they were succeeding in a sport. And a lot of these people had never thought that these opportunities were available to them before. And so uh, I work for an organization called the Bay Area Outreach and Recreation Program here in Berkeley, uh, and we serve all of Northern California. And after the Paralympics, all of a sudden there were more people calling because they didn't know that this opportunity existed before. They didn't know that these, uh, you know, programs were available up until they saw this on TV. And so independent of, of what happens here, the legacy is the fact that, that he broadened the awareness of people around the world to the availability of sports and, and recreation opportunities for individuals with physical disabilities. Trooper Johnson has competed in four Paralympic Games uh, as a member of the U.S. National Wheelchair Basketball Team. He's now Youth Sports Program Coordinator for the Bay Area Outreach and Recreation Program. Trooper, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Israeli politicians are engaged in intense negotiations to form a new governing coalition. And one of the trickiest issues they're facing is referred to by Israelis as sharing the burden. The phrase refers to a large number of ultra-Orthodox Jewish men who are exempt from military service. They rely on government subsidies and spend long hours in full-time religious study. Few of them enter the workforce, and this has caused resentment among other Israelis. One potential key player on this issue is the first American-born Israeli to be elected to parliament in a generation. The world's Matthew Bell has this profile. For Dove Lipman, a 41-year-old rabbi who grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, the road to the Knesset ran through the less-than-glamorous Israeli city of Beit Shemesh. In late 2011, Beit Shemesh was a cultural battleground. It was big news when members of the ultra-Orthodox community harassed and spit on an 8-year-old Jewish girl for not dressing modestly enough. And Rabbi Lippmann was there, in front of the TV cameras, celebrating Hanukkah with the girl's family. He became a very public advocate against the extremism and self-imposed isolation of the ultra-Orthodox community. For that, Lippmann says he was spat upon and even received death threats. 
but he kept it up, calling on the ultra-Orthodox to do more to integrate into mainstream Israeli society. It's mostly the political leadership of the ultra-Orthodox community. The average ultra-Orthodox person on the ground is ready for some kind of a change, slow, gradual, and the rest of the country is willing to be patient and let it happen that way. Last summer, Lippmann spoke with me at a small demonstration in Tel Aviv. A group of young army veterans was demanding that thousands of ultra-Orthodox men either join the army or do national service. Most are now exempt from service. They spend long years in full-time religious study, and the government foots much of the bill. Judaism puts an emphasis on learning the Old Testament, or Torah, but Rabbi Lippmann told me there needs to be a better balance. Listen, I love studying Torah. I dedicated my life to the rabbinate. I couldn't sit and study Torah day and night for my entire life. It's not a normal thing. There's an elite group that I'm sure can do it, and the country is ready to support them and support them well. We're not talking about going into the study halls and clearing them out and go giving them a gun and saying, serve in the army. They're talking about community service within their own communities. That message of compromise earned Lipman a spot in a new political party that's led by one of Israel's rising political stars, Yair Lapid. The former journalist and his Yeshatid party, meaning there is a future, made sharing the burden a centerpiece of their campaign. And they surprised just about everybody in the recent election by winning the second highest number of seats in the parliament. I spoke with Dove Lipman at the Knesset about a week ago on the day he took the oath of office. This meant he had to give up his American citizenship. He said that was one of the hardest things he's ever done. You know, America meant so much to my family, taking in my family from persecution in Russia and in, in, in the Holocaust. And, uh, and America has given me so much in terms of my values of tolerance and respecting one another. And I, I felt like I was uh, smacking my country in the face. But Lipman said he's throwing himself into Israeli politics to try and bring about some change, especially in the ultra-Orthodox community. He said he wants his work in the Knesset to be a continuation of what he was doing as an activist in Beit Shemesh. Extremism happens when the ultra-Orthodox community is isolated. So the more they're isolated, the more they're not part of the broader society, the more extremism can be bred. What we're trying to do is create a situation where they continue religious observance as they are, but they're serving in the army, serving in national service, going to school, working. When that happens, and as that happens, it'll be a process, but as we get to that point, there'll be less extremism and events like happened in Beit Shemesh will not happen again. Lipman told me that many people in the ultra-Orthodox community are ready for change, and with his religious background, he can be a bridge between them and the mainstream. But this will not be easy, says Gil Hoffman. He covers politics for the Jerusalem Post. It's true that there's a lot of uh, ultra-Orthodox grassroots who realize that things have gotten out of hand and their rabbis aren't going to realize that anytime soon. Unfortunately, it's the rabbis who make the decisions for them. So the challenge in terms of making these changes uh, can't be underestimated. Uh, You're talking about changing a culture among people who are raised to be uncompromising. Last week, Dove Lipman spoke in Parliament for the first time, and he made his pitch for compromise to his Knesset colleagues. Some 70 years ago, Lipman said, his grandmother left the death camp at Auschwitz alive. As she told him, there were no sectarian divisions in the camp. No one differentiated between secular or religious, traditional or ultra-Orthodox Jews. And neither did the Nazis. Here in the land of Israel, Lipman went on to say, it's time to do the same, to break down the sectarian divisions that characterize Israeli politics and society today. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem.
Coming up, the Arabic music mishmash known as Makam on PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Online retail giant Amazon has been under fire recently for the appalling working conditions at one of its branches in Germany. Yesterday, the company severed ties with a security subcontractor whose guards harassed and intimidated Amazon employees. The guards also wore uniforms with neo-Nazi insignia. The abuses were the subject of a TV documentary aired last week by German broadcaster ARD. Investigative journalist Peter Oniken worked on the film, which showed how workers from all over Europe were treated after they arrived in Germany to do short-term work for Amazon. You have to think of these people coming from Poland, Spain, there for two to three months, and they have no privacy at all. I mean, they're placed in small rooms with two people, and um, beside that, there's always a security um, doing pocket controls uh, at the dining room, doing house controls, petrols coming in and checking if everything is okay. We never expected this, even while we were shooting. And, and which aspect of this story created the most outcry? Was it the fact... Uh, of the company that was hired, who who seems to have connections to uh, neo-Nazis, or was it the way that the workers were treated? I think it's hard to say. I think what we really think we were able to do is show the picture how the life is there for this three months. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're separated from your families. Um, you were tricked in, in some points. That they told you first you would work directly for Amazon. Then it, it turned out you work for less money for a subcontractor. And then I think the story about the, these people in, in this extreme right-wing dresses uh, were uh, the sugar of the icing, actually, where you would say, this is unbelievable. And, and what's been the reaction from the contractor, Amazon, and uh, the German government? Well, Amazon at least decided um, yesterday they would not work together with this security company. Our Ministry for Employment, they're, they're looking for the, the working conditions um, within Amazon, within the, the temp working companies, and there should be results soon the next days. At least that's what they promised. So far, Amazon is still not talking to us. The head of the uh, security company says the the incidents that you record were just uh, basically rogue employees. It is not the way that uh, his company treats workers. I wouldn't do the mistake to claim more as we can prove. So so far as we looked into it, because it's it's, it's a side step of the story, we were interested in, in, in Amazon and how Amazon actually um, treats the workforce. We saw lots of people um, from soccer hooligan scenes and also with friends of extremely right-wing tendencies um, and also till up the, the company level. Uh, and even till the top of the company, they sh- um, try to show on Facebook their extreme right-wing views. And he's now um, denying uh, different things we never said. So that's a typical strategy to um, avoid telling the truth. Now, how, how satisfying has it been for you that your work has made such an impact? Uh, working rules maybe are changed, uh, Amazon losing customers. A lot has happened since your story came out seeing in an article in, in a Chinese newspaper about German working conditions or Sudan and all over the States for us, it's impressive. And it's hard for us to believe it right now because it's just five, six days ago. But so far, not so much is done, to be fair. I mean, within Amazon. I mean, they, they now sacked some companies, but what, what they really need is a different understanding of treating their, their workers. Peter Oniken is an investigative journalist with the German public television network ARD. He was speaking to us from Berlin. Peter, thank you for your time. Cheers.
The final word on today's program is maqam. It's an Arabic musical term, and for the past two years, there's been a musical festival in New York City devoted to it. Reporter Bruce Wallace attended this year's maqam fest to find out what the musical style really is. This is a maqam. This is a maqam. This is a macam too. What exactly is a macam? They're basically seven-note scales, similar to Western scales in that regard, um, except that some of them have uncommon intervals, uh, in particular intervals that use quarter tones or notes that are sort of would lie somewhere in between the white keys and the black keys on the piano. Amir El Safar is an Iraqi American musician and curator of Macam Fest. He says the festival explores Makam's ability to cross all sorts of national and regional boundaries. It's just fascinating to me that this musical language has existed throughout the centuries and has traversed this incredible distance. It sort of tells a history, and maybe an alternative history of, of humanity. One group playing Makam Fest, New Andalusia, takes the historical connections between Spain and North Africa as its jumping-off point. They open their set with an oud and a nylon string guitar trading improvisation, a classic way of settling into a macam. Sevillan singer Alfonso Mugaburo Sid sings lines of Spanish poetry about a beautiful woman wearing a cross. Tunisian musician Taufik bin Amor answers with lines from an Arabic poem. The Muslim poet is also admiring a woman wearing a cross on her necklace. He doesn't have an issue with the difference of religion. It's just that he's jealous of where the cross sits, you know. Bin Amor says literary connections deepen the group's cultural exchange. And so it binds both. And then all of a sudden we both are singing, you know, these two really beautiful poems that are about, you know, uh, a beloved or a woman who's wearing a cross. European and Arabic traditions combined again at the end of the night in the piano of Amino Belyamani, whose group Saha closed Makamfest. After studying Western classical and jazz music, Belyamani started digging into the music of his native Morocco. In Saha, he plays a piano that's been retuned to accommodate different makam. He says the retuning opened up new vistas in his playing. It just sounds more natural, actually. It almost sounds like the instrument is made for those kind of intervals. But not everyone agrees. Belyamani had to go to L.A. to record Saha's new album because he couldn't convince any studios in New York to retune their pianos. And he'd like to tour with a group, but it's hard enough to find venues with pianos, let alone ones that will retune them. People have suggested playing with easily retunable electronic keyboards instead. But that way I will never (coughs) impose this new paradigm. I think I just need to be stubborn about it until it happens. Just like anything, at some point... 
people accept this change that that needs to happen. There's no reason why why it shouldn't. Until then, the good people at Macomfest are more than happy to tune the pianos however the musicians want. For the world, I'm Bruce Wallace in Manhattan. You can listen to more of Saha's unique Makam tunings. We've posted the full version of their song 1833, played over a North African Berber rhythm at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter. Thanks for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.